Welcome back to The Great Indoors. Before we dive into today's interview, I want to tell you about our next season, which will be recorded live at MWC Barcelona from February the 26th to the 29th. You'll hear from industry experts, explore new innovations, and gain new insight into the world of connectivity. New episodes coming early March, wherever you get your podcasts. For four long years, the Nazis hold Holland in a cruel stranglehold. Deprived of food, deported to work in death camps. In 1944, the Canadian Army is enlisted to do one of the war's toughest jobs. Carve out an Allied supply route along the treacherous Scheldt estuary. Outnumbered and outgunned, they slog through 80 kilometers of mud and blood. While the ground battle rages on, Canadian bombers fly missions of mercy, dropping payloads of food staples. On April 17, 1945, Canadian forces liberate Appledorn. The Dutch stream into the streets, showering their saviors with flowers and gratitude, forging a bond of friendship that will last for generations. Welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast where we look at the technological implications brought about by the next industrial revolution and how this can potentially help solve the biggest problems facing humanity. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and joining me is my co-pilot and producer, Larissa Yee. Now, in that opening clip, we featured an excerpt of what the Dutch people had to go through during World War II until they were eventually liberated by the Allied forces, particularly the Canadians. And today's guest, Mr. John A. Brink, had his Dutch village liberated by Canadian soldiers on April the 12th, 1945. He was five years of age. And at that exact moment, he was determined he would one day move to Canada, the land of his heroes. Like many others who lived through that time, John had lived his entire life with the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, resulting from being in such a war zone. And after serving in the Dutch Air Force for two years, John subsequently emigrated to Canada in July 1965, arriving in Prince George, British Columbia, with $25.47 in his pocket. He had realized his dream. And from there, he embarked upon realizing another, which was owning a sawmill. And from there, he created Brink Forest Products, which has since become North America's leading secondary manufacturer of value-added wood products. Now, at 83 years of age, John continues to succeed in his role as president and CEO of the Brink Group of Companies and 10 other companies for that matter. He's the author of three books and the host and creator of the On the Brink podcast series. He's also a fierce advocate for erasing the stigma surrounding ADHD, something which he's lived with his entire life. And at the grand age of 83, he's also a bodybuilding champion and works out every day in order to remain in competitive shape. Now, this podcast is typically always focused on what technology can or cannot do for the younger demographic cohorts, whether they're the Gen Zs or the Millennials. But we've never tackled how baby boomers, in John's case, have adopted new technologies to thrive. And what did his journey look like from yesteryear to today, when what we take for granted today, technologically wise, didn't exist at all? 
So I'm incredibly excited to welcome to the great indoors today, Mr. John A. Brink. John, welcome. Well, thanks, Matt. Uh, glad to be here. And Larissa, obviously, uh, nice to see you. Excellent. No, thank you take, uh, for taking the time. I know you're out on the West Coast, and we're going to get into your story uh, in more depth. But just for our listeners, John, give uh, your two-minute elevator pitch on yourself and your success to date. So I was born uh, November the 1st, 1940, so that makes me just 83. I was born in northeastern Holland. Uh, Holland was liberated by the Canadians April the 12th, 1945 which uh, developed my first dream is to go to the land of my heroes, Canada. And as soon as I could, I tried to go when I was 17, they wouldn't let me. So then finally I bought when I was 23. And then the other dream that I had to start a lumber mill and I wanted to start with absolutely nothing. When I came here, could speak language, didn't know so, didn't have a job. By the time I arrived in Prince George, I had exactly $25 and 47 cents. And, but what I did have in, in that abundance is attitude. I'm always positive, passion. I love what I do and work ethic. A number of other things. I'm uh, a late bloomer in a sense. Uh, uh, after I was 70, I became an author. I'm a active public speaker in demand uh, quite uh, substantially. And then obviously uh, I've been very, very active in podcasting on the brink. I've done about close to 200 podcasts and uh, and here I am today. Excellent. There's a lot to unpack, right? And we're going to dive in uh, to some of those uh, uh, elements of, of your story, John. But I'm really excited. I'm really excited about this episode. And, and meeting you yesterday got me really excited about the discussion we're going to have. So let's go all the way back to the moment you decided to leave Europe, to come to Canada Go into a little bit more detail about that whole experience, because when, when we talked about this, the there's a lot of migration to Canada right now. It, it's one of the key characteristics of Canada as a, as a nation. But migrating, leaving continents 60, 70 years ago was a very different proposition. So for our listeners, John, go through the experience that you went through as a young man. The Second World War started... Uh... The German invaded uh, the Benelux companies, uh, Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, uh, early uh, 1940. My dad was uh, drafted into the Dutch army in April of 1940. I, was, uh, I still had a sister and a brother one year and two years older than me, and I was born in November, so I didn't know him, and my mother was pregnant with me uh, when he left. It would take five years before we knew it that... Uh, he was, the last time they saw him or heard from him was in, he was caught in Rotterdam just before the bombing of Rotterdam that killed thousands. And they were not sure if he was dead or alive. So it was a tough go for my mom with three little kids and uh, bombers overhead bombing Germany. And again, uh, remember I was born in northeastern Holland, about 10, 15 minutes from the German border. So in the distance, we could see cities burning and hundreds of planes in the air, daytime, nighttime, bombing. The winter 1944-45 was uh, known as the Hunger Winter. It uh, was the coldest winter on record, and uh, there was not much food left because the Germans had cut off all the food supply to force 
the war and uh you know we would as kids go out uh, in the mornings with gunny sacks into the railroad yards uh, to look for edibles or burnables anything at all the reason that we did as kids is that uh, the germans would not shoot us they would put us one and the following day we'd just be back but i still remember the feeling of hunger still can feel it today actually uh, of that feeling of hunger the other part of cold still stays with you then obviously on april the 12th 1945 we were liberated by the canadian army and uh, and and things were tough there then uh, at the end of the war we saw fortunes that we should not have seen uh, there was a period of no man's land when the germans were out had blown up all the bridges uh, behind them to make sure that the Canadians didn't catch up to them and including a bridge right in front of our house. And a number of people uh, were shot and, and during the, uh, the no man period uh, where the Germans were gone and the Canadians were on their way close by, uh, things got pretty rough and uh, a lot of the collaborators were gathered up and either shot or, or other things happened to them that uh, were not very nice. and. Uh, it was a tough, tough period, and far, seeing far too much that we should not have seen. Uh, obviously, the effect of PTSD was there. The other part uh, was the fear of losing the one parent that we had, uh, and a child uh, uh, issue became something I was actually counseled for in my late 50s. So what was left with me is that uh, the dream of going to Canada, the land of my heroes, was always on my mind. And as far as I was concerned, there was no question. I belonged in Canada. I was trying to go when I was 17, was drafted by the Dutch Air Force, actually, for 30 months. And then uh, the other part was that my dad had worked in the lumber industry and my grandfather was a master carpenter. So my destiny was lumber-related. There was no question about it. I loved it and uh, already started a, a bit of a career after my Air Force days and... Uh, decided to apply for immigration to Canada, but I wanted to start with nothing. Uh, you know, I was not overly successful academically. I failed grade three, failed grade seven three times. And they said, what are we going to do with this guy? So they fortunately got me a trade. I became a furniture maker and uh, uh, that served me actually very well. But uh, I kind of felt in a way that uh, I had failed and uh, you know, as you know, uh, young people cannot always be very understanding of things. Uh, so where I used to go with my friends to school and who then progressed to college and university, I became a laborer. I'm proud of that today, but then it was kind of looked down on. And uh, so, but I knew I could do it. I was as good as everybody else. And I, I had the, I believe the ability and uh, I wanted to start on my own with one suitcase, three books, two sets of clothes, and start out with the dream of building a lumber mill in British Columbia. And so then you came. You came to Canada. The dream became true. But what were the early days like when you first landed? I, I, I think you said that your English skills were limited at the time. You know, being able to communicate with people back in the Netherlands was very a very different proposition to how it is today. So what was those early landed experiences like for you, John? So when I arrived here, uh, you know, in Vancouver originally, and uh, I couldn't speak the English at all. I know yes and no, but that was about the extent of it. Uh, I went to the immigration office. Fortunately, there was a German fellow there, and I could speak some German. 
I told him what I wanted to do. My dream was to build a sawmill. And he said, go to Prince George and, and for lots of forest industry. And then uh, it's a big province. So Prince George is 500 miles or 800 kilometers north of Vancouver. So I went with a Greyhound bus to Prince George. And by the time I got off the bus here, I had $25.47, no job. And obviously I couldn't speak language. And uh, I needed a job desperately because obviously all I had left is $25.47. And they found me a job of uh, being uh, becoming a, a cleanup man and a sawmill here. And that's kind of how it started. And were you homesick? I mean, because, you know, what a million people moved to Canada in the last year. And of course, they have the ability to use WhatsApp, Zoom, Teams to communicate at any hour back from the country that they left. You didn't have that luxury. What was the, A, the feeling like of, of, of potentially missing home and missing your family that was still in the Netherlands? And B, how did you communicate with them at all? Yeah, so the feeling, uh, Matt and uh, Larissa, was that uh, I already belonged here. So there was no question in my mind that if I would go back, I either would go back in a box or successful. And this sounds a bit radical, but that's kind of the way I thought about it. There was no option as far as I was concerned. I would go forward. And there was no question in my mind that at some point I would become successful. Communications was, in those days, 60 years ago, 1965-ish, and more difficult. There was telegrams, and uh, you send a telegram and saying, uh, I'm doing fine, stop, and uh, this, and that I have a job and uh, I'm getting paid $2 an hour. So that's pretty good. And, uh, and then you wait for them to reply at some point. And, uh, you know, so that's the way it was. Right. And then, and, and in your mind, so then you settled in Canada, your dream came true and your dream even got bigger and, and bigger. And, and, and some of the things that you've done are, are, are quite incredible. Do you think Canada and that passion for Canada made that happen? Was it the uniqueness of Canada that allowed you to realize some of the other things beyond the initial dream, do you think, John? Yeah, I believe Canada has uh, is an amazing country and that has lots of opportunity. The benefit to me was that mentally I belonged here already. You know, there was no question in my mind that I would become successful and the other benefit was that nobody would ask me or ever has asked me in the 60 years that I've been here since that time is, uh, what is your religion or what is your education? Where are your diplomas and, uh, and what is your standing in society? Uh, are you a laborer or are you, you know, the, the class structure in Holland and, and, in Europe to a certain extent was, uh, if you were not born the right way, then you'd be kind of a laborer, you know, and that would be a bit of a challenge, you know. So that never was a challenge. Here, nobody ever asked me about any of those kind of things. It was just, uh, do you want to work hard? And if you work hard and you stay the course and are prepared to not give up and become good at what you do, you will succeed. It's, uh, you know, what I say, attitude, passion, work ethic, but will follow is success. That has always been my foundation. 
Awesome. Great. Now, normally when we talk about technology, we're always looking at it through the lens of millennials or Gen Zs or digital natives, demographic cohorts. And, you know, you're from the baby boomer demographic cohort, right, John, born during World War II. And you've done podcasts, you've done writing, you've got a successful business. How has technology and the leaps that we've made technologically in recent years helped you with the success of those endeavors? Obviously, what has happened, uh, Matt, is that uh, I've been alert to it. I've always been interested in what happens to technology. That is not only being part of my success, but also is something that I'm very alert to as we go forward. Uh, how will it uh, involve in my businesses that I do? And uh, as you indicated, uh, our businesses are doing well. I still in, intend to double in size probably next five to 10 years. And that involves uh, very much technology. Mm -hmm. that's, really, that's really interesting. Now, I, I was in a conference in New York last week. We were talking about generative AI. In fact, you can't go a day where you don't hear about generative AI. And some people are already heralding it as the greatest innovation since the birth of the internet. And there has been so many technological milestones in the last, really in the last 50 years. Which one stands out the most to you, John? If we looked at, like you said, you moved from telegram to telephone, then we had mobile telephony, the birth of the internet, mobile internet, with all these different things, now generative AI. Which one to you has, has had the most significant impact on your life to date? I would say that all the things that were done by somebody I admire very much is uh, Steve Jobs. The other one is uh, Bill Gates, obviously very much stands out. All the technology around them, the pace seems to continue to pick up as we go through their business models. Whoever would have thought that uh, Apple and same as Microsoft became the companies that they are even ours today, and they have a, a major effect. One of the more recent ones is uh, AI, and uh, I believe that uh, AI is another evolution, again, that is to the fear of that will replace us uh, individuals, it will likely make some jobs much easier, but it still will require the intellect and the innovations and initiatives of individuals, entrepreneurial thinking, people that think uh, long-term strategically, it still will require the touches of that component to make it work. So I think, uh, although it is uh, virtually growing on a daily basis. I was watching a program the other day by some of the people that are fairly involved and I say, you can write a book in 15 minutes, you know, so, but it does, it goes far beyond editing or all those kind of things. It still will very much require entrepreneurial strategic thinking and being able to think forward and out of the box. That's at the end of the day, makes people successful as having the ability to think forwards. Where will we be, whatever you're pursuing, the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And it, that leads me perfectly in, into what I wanted to talk to you about next, John. And we've already touched on it there, but you've written three books. Generative AI comes along, and like you said, it could write a whole book 
my personal view on this is you still need to have the authentic human touch, the experience that the human has had to go through to be able to articulate those stories in, in the correct way. And you've had a, a lifetime of incredible stories. And I don't think generative AI, however good or clever it can get, can take away from that human experience, that authenticity and that emotion that you go through with all of the stories that happen in your life, right? So tell me about your book writing process, what you've gone through with the, with the books you've written, the challenges you've faced, because I'm personally really in, in, uh, interested to hear because we're doing a lot of our marketing and writing through generative AI right now. But that's the big debate, the human versus machine dichotomy as we move forward. Give us, a, our, our listeners, an insight on your whole, A, on your books and B, on the process that went in to creating those. Okay, let me tell. start with this one here, Against All Odds, and uh, it's an autobiography, you know, and obviously, as you indicated, I had an interesting life and interesting things happen along the way, and for a long time, I had people telling me, say, you should write a book about this, and uh, I look at this book as uh, not so much as hurrah, hurrah, John, how successful he was, but how did he manage through all the ups and downs, and there were plenty of them along the way. So I said about uh, against all odds, and as you well know, and Larissa well knows, that if you write an autobiography, writing books is not easy. And if you write an autobiography, it's not saying, I wrote this one, but uh, a couple of things I would start with, I'm writing another one. You better do it right. Uh, so it took me 80 years to live it, 20 years to think about it, starting, stopping, starting, stopping. And then about four years ago, I said, if I don't do it now, it will never happen. So that's when I started and that's when I wrote it. Although academically, I was not overly successful, but I've always been a good writer. I am a storyteller. That's what I do. If I do a presentation, I do it with passion and I acquired the skills to become good at it. Although initially I wasn't, thanks to Toastmasters, I became very good at it and I'm very much in demand. The same as my books is the second one that I wrote is that by coincidence, 32 years after I came to Canada in 1965, in 1997, I walked into a bookstore here. Even then, I already all kinds of businesses I had and everybody said, oh, you're so successful. I still felt I had been a failure. Failure to the extent that I did not feel personally that I had succeeded. And as I walked into a bookstore, he is still here. In January of 1997, I opened a book, Driven to Distraction was the title. And I opened it. I still don't know why. And it started with ADHD. And I said, oh my God, that's me. And I wrote in it in Dutch because I was ashamed of it. Now I finally know who I am. After the stigma is starting to disappear, I use it in my presentations a lot on this issue and many, many others. So I wrote a book, ADHD Unlocked. It was thought that about 8% of the population are affected by ADHD. I believe, and so do many others now, is that it is likely well in excess of 20%. So even people that are not only ADHD, also those that are affected by trauma or in, in subsequently are not very good at structure, 
teaching or academics as we know them, I also believe the public in general should better understand, respectfully, ADHD and because they are very, very good, but they are different than other people. And to, you will encounter them. It is either in your family, in your circle of friends, or life in general. And to understand them is helpful. I call it a superpower. Without it unlocked, as I say here, all of a sudden it may clear why I wasn't very successful in the academic pursuits that I had. I'm still active in writing. Another book that will come out uh, in July, actually, it's uh, uh, Living Young, Dying Old, which means quality of life is very important in how you go about it. Uh, I'm, I'm very active in my companies, writing books, doing podcasting, and then uh, doing, uh, being actively pursuing uh, physical health and uh, bodybuilding and physique. I'm, I'm the oldest competitive bodybuilder in North America. I just want to go back to the ADHD thing because what I think is really interesting, when we looked at what happened um, during COVID, a lot of those younger demographics, the, the millennials and the Gen Zs, came under a lot of trauma at the time, more than we could imagine. And right. conditions like ADHD are now recognizable, diagnosable, and, and fairly common, right? But even when I was in school 30 years ago, ADHD was not a thing. It was not no. something that would even be discussed, looked at, defined. So I think for you to acknowledge it as something that gives you a superpower later on in life is, is really incredible. But what is the superpower? How does it help you write the book? How do you structure? What's your... Do you just sit down and do you just go for it? Do you write? Do you need to be inspired? What's the the spark or the process or the peace of mind you have to be in to write? Because you've done a lot of writing. If you've got your fourth book coming out next year, how does ADHD lend itself to giving you that superpower to, to do those things? I don't think about it all that much because that's me. I've always been, even at the time that... Uh... I was in grade seven. The one thing that I did is I was a good writer. Imagining your creativity and imagination was yeah. always there. And then the same, and, and amazingly, I have a very good memory, and I always did. And more so than apparently a lot of people comments on it, say, you know, how come you remember those things? Well, I, I never think anything of it because that's always been me. I, I a lot of times get into settings. I don't know what will happen. But I'm a very good uh, presenter, and uh, all kinds of things happen, and uh, I'm usually very, very successful in doing it. And uh, I know pretty much what I'm going to speak about, and then how do you do it? Uh, it just happens to me. And then the same is with books, uh, you know, that I know what they should look like, and uh, I know what the, the concept is that I'm trying to communicate. I'm a storyteller. That's what I do. And then with the ADHD, uniquely, I wanted to make sure that this book uh, was written in such a way that you can open it anywhere. You can go either backwards or forwards. It's typical ADHD people in general are not very good book readers. And I wanted to make it in such a way that it will capture them and it will create their interest and then subsequently uh, you know, they will uh, learn things from it among mine and others. 
So the one thing with my ADHD book is saying that I was very happy with the book, but when we were getting, as you know, the writing books is not easy. Yeah, what should be the structure? What should be the layout? What should be the the cover? What should be the back of the book? How should it be? Should that be on the back? And should there be pictures in the book? What should be the font size? All those things. And I felt when I wrote the book and it was virtually ready to go to the printers and was print ready, as they say, is that something was missing. And because I, I told the story, did the analysis, interviewed numerous of people. The foreword to this book actually is written by a person by the name of Dr. Tracy Lotz, who is a medical doctor and an emergency surgeon and ADHD. And by pure coincidence, uh, I was sitting on a flight uh, next to a fellow that said, uh, you remember me? I said, uh, I kind of do. He said, well, you were writing a book and I come. I said, yeah. He said, are oh, you finished the book against all odds? I said, I did. I'm writing another one about ADHD. He said, that's interesting. Because he said, I'm the vice president of academics of the British Columbia Institute of Technology, and we are working on something that is called microcertification. I said, click. That's something I need to know more about it. Then the flight ended, and I said, I need you to tell me more about microcertification. But it basically is saying that in some cases that as people study for a particular specialty, rather than making it four years, the core issues of the certification probably are less than six months or whatever they are, focus on that and then add the other things later. And it changes a lot of things, including the major shortage of specialties and all of those kind of things. So he wrote a portion of that, uh, at least an element of that in my book and saying these are some of the directions that we can go forward in, and it's called micro-certification. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Because as a fellow podcaster, I'm always interested to understand what was the genesis, the spark, what guests you've had on, what you plan to do with it in the future, because that's uh, fascinating as well. Yeah, so the we already started this probably a couple of years before COVID, actually, and already started working. I didn't call it podcasting, but working with the local television pr- uh, provider, it was Shaw, actually, and then... And so we did uh, their podcast uh, there, but to the spotlight, I think, or so they call that, and where they deal with local stories that uh, may be of interest. And uh, so we did that for about a year and a half, two years, and and did something specializing, especially in the forest industry, and and working mainly in the region. And to do that anymore uh, could not be done because of uh, restrictions surrounding COVID uh, and and then Shaw in their studios. So we said, what do we do now? So we, I had an apartment here in Prince George that uh, was very bad suited for making a, a studio. So we started uh, creating a studio. 
and then gradually added uh, the right cameras, the right lighting, because no matter what you do, you have to have the right equipment. And then uh, started uh, doing podcasting, mainly again on a regional basis. Then we said, okay, now it's amazing how many stories we have in the area of uh, very special individuals that have accomplished a lot of things, including the Olympics and on and on and on, uh, other things. Uh, So then we said we have to make this circle bigger. Where we are now, we probably doing, I would say, more than 50% of our podcasting virtual. We are working closely with Podmatch, who I found interesting. We became a member of them that develop a platform that connects podcasters, either guests or hosts, together. I, I, I believe we were in the top 2% globally, and they must have 25,000 podcasters in some form of a fashion. We're doing about 12 to 15 podcasts a month. We are guests probably another half a dozen a month. And I love it for all the reasons that you just said. Where will it go for us from here on in? Uh, by the end of the year, we'll have done 200 podcasts. And we intend to grow that even further in looking at other platforms. Say, where can we go from here? What will it look like? What should be our role in that? In the meantime, we send, we are very, very active on the podcasting side. I love interacting with people from all around the globe. And I see that podcasting and, and that type of interaction is just at the start. It will become much bigger, much broader, and much more global. You'll be thinking, do you enjoy writing or hosting your podcast? Which one do you get a bigger kick out of, John? Probably both. They're distinctly different. Uh, you know, until people fully appreciate the benefit of, like, against all odds, and, uh, the comments that I've had is an amazing, amazing book, and it has the, the right information. I know that these books will sell a million copies. There's no question about that in my mind. And I wrote them with, uh, you know, uh, giving it all that I got. And again, the style that I have, I'm a storyteller, and that's what I do. So if you ask me, where do you get the most kick out of, uh, out of your writing of the books or giving keynote presentations to students, young people, or podcasting, the most satisfaction I get is I believe I'm a very good speaker and, and a presenter and, and, uh, uh, because I do it with attitude, passion, work. I give it all that I got, and I, I get very, very good results. The next one close to that would be podcasting, either being a guest or doing my own podcasting. If you ask me five, 10 years from now, uh, where did you get the most reward? It probably is the books that brought me to the level where I will become still a very active podcaster. I probably will own uh, a platform of some sort or another communicating with the rest of the world. Well, I have to say, John, uh, you're a huge inspiration. I've only met you yesterday for the first time, but I think we have a lot in common from our origins in Europe to where we are in Canada, our passion for storytelling and podcasting. And if I had a modicum of the success that you've had over your career, I would be uh, very grateful indeed. And um, I just want to ask you, who's been your biggest influence over the years, John? Who have you looked up to as a figure that you would uh, aspire to be like? I believe... 
a number of things is that uh, if you ask me, which some people do sometimes, and I'm saying this in a positive way, if you took three books with you, I had a suitcase, two sets of clothes, three books. The, the one book that I had in Dutch was uh, Management by Drucker. It was an inspiration to me and, and still is today. I still have the same books I read, read it many, many times. And the other one was logical thinking, was an inspiration to me. And then, uh, you know, obviously a book about Canada. Those were the books. Other individuals that have been an inspiration to me is uh, more local and regional is likely uh, Jimmy Patterson, uh, a very successful entrepreneur, started from nothing virtually and is more a BC Canadian entrepreneur, has been an inspiration. And in individuals, uh, more the, the recent ones are Jeff uh, from uh, Amazon is an inspiration. Elon, I'm still working on him. I sometimes think he puts his foot in it too much. Uh, but on the other hand, he has been immensely successful, the richest guy in the world. Uh, you know, I would not want to be necessarily a billionaire because it would change everything around me, what I'm doing now. There's still nights that I lay awake at nights because I got an idea and I want to implement it in the morning. I love that. I can still, uh, you know, fly to Vancouver on a commercial flight, sit next to somebody that's sharing their life with me, and 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 it is an immense impression on me. And I like doing what I'm doing at 83 and still looking around the world and looking to Central Europe now, the Ukraine, and then the Middle East. They're saying. How fortunate, how fortunate we are living in North America, in Canada, in the United States. And uh, I look out of the window, uh, I look outside, I said, it's paradise. Awesome. How we close out our podcast is we have our fun round called TGI to go. And I'm going to give you a multiple choice question and you're going to answer best, uh, based on your preference. And so we've tried to tailor make some of these questions for you specifically. So if you're sitting comfortably, we'll do TGI to go. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, here we go. TGI to go. Question number one. I think you'll like this one, John. Stroke waffles or poutine? Stroke waffles. Yeah. <laughs> what can I shouldn't have bothered? <laughs> you know, I think I said this to one of our other guests in, in this Canadian series. I've lived here over seven years. I've never had poutine. But when I lived in the Netherlands, I had stroke waffles almost every day. Yeah. 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 Next question. Feyenoord or Ajax? Ajax. Yeah. Big rivalry. Do you still follow any uh, Dutch soccer? I do. Uh, I grew up... Uh playing soccer and uh, and judo, those are about the same, and then speed skating, that's what I did. Yes. Uh, I still yeah. follow uh, uh, soccer very much. One of the best sports in the world for kids, and no question about that. So going to a more Canadian sport now, the Canucks or the Flames? Canucks. Has to be, has to be. Question three, do you like musicals or would you rather go to a rock concert? Musical. Any favorites? Uh, I'm a country music uh, fan. Wow, excellent. Banff or Whistler? If you had to go to either of those national parks, which one would you prefer? I would go to Whistler because my family is living close by. Okay. 
Yeah. In Pemberton. Oh, uh, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And the final question for TGI to go, and you touched on it earlier, and I think it closes out uh, today's episode pretty well. Arnold Schwarzenegger or The Rock Dwayne Johnson? Arnold Schwarzenegger. He invited yep. me to the Arnold's and uh, I qualified for it in 2018. I intend to qualify again in 2024. So tell us, our listeners a little bit about your bodybuilding then, John. That's uh, a, a really great way to close it out. It's it's more than accidental in a way. Everybody needs a little shocker as to why they should clean up uh, in terms of their diet and, and their body. That is such a precious gift but uh, and so forgiving, but not abu- will not take well to abuse. So I nearly died in 2008. Diverticulitis was the... And I just made it barely. And uh, then from there on in, I thought I'd take it serious, go to the gym. I hired a trainer because I need an appointment. That's uh, in my whole life is built around appointments. And I started uh, working out, cleaning up my diet, uh, worked out for about six, seven years. And then one day somebody said to me, have you ever thought about competing? And I said, I said, why not? So I started uh, working out even harder. And then uh, started uh, competing here in Northern BC, came in uh, bodybuilding and physique, 55 years and older. I was already 70, came in second in bodybuilding, third in physique. They qualified me for the provincials, came in third in physique, second in uh, bodybuilding. That qualified me for the nationals and the Arnolds. Most of the guys, the the next one, uh, my age, the 55-year and older group, uh, the master group, I was by far the oldest, and uh, and a lot of those that were competing against me could have been my kids. But I placed, and uh, and I love it. I still do that today. After this is over, I'm going to the gym again and uh, getting ready for 2024. You know, I asked you that question earlier, who has been your biggest influence. I thought you might say Arnold Schwarzenegger, John, and you know why? I watched the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary series on Netflix where... Not only did he come from Europe to North America, but he knew from an early age that the United States was where he was destined to be. In fact, he thought he did a DNA test. He thought he could have actually been American during World War II when he was born. And he had that aspiration, that premonition that that's where he needed to be. But then his life had three distinct elements, the bodybuilding, then the acting, and then the politician. He he embraced three different things. And, and I think you're very similar. You came from, from Europe with this clear dream uh, to, to come to Canada. You fulfilled your aspirations in, in the business world, in the lumber world. You've written books. You've done podcasting. And then at the end of it all, you've done the bodybuilding. I mean, it's it's a, it's an incredible story. And, and one that I, I think that, that is very similar to the whole Schwarzenegger story in, in many respects. And the key of the light under, lying underneath that mat in Larissa is that once you start something, never, never, ever give up. Stay the course. I think that's an absolute wonderful way to end the episode today, uh, John. And any, any last uh, message you'd like to leave uh, beyond that for our listeners? Where can they find you? Where can they learn more about you, etc.? Yeah, uh, uh, com uh, is the one. And then obviously our podcast is On the Brink. Uh, you know, the we do a whole variety of podcasting. The books are 
on uh, audio as well as uh, written books. They are all, all yeah. on the major media. And uh, Have you narrated the audio for them as well? Yes, I do all the books myself, yeah. Well, look, John, I've absolutely really enjoyed our conversation today. You're an inspiration. It's been a fascinating discussion. I think we could have talked for hours and hours and hours and hours. I'll for sure will be following you from this point on. Uh, and thank you very much for joining The Great Indoors today. Thanks, Matt and Larissa. It was a privilege. What a great episode. What an inspiration. Thank you very much, John. Or should I say, Dan Cabal. Do you feel motivated after that? I know I do. Uh, maybe I'm not going to take up competitive bodybuilding just yet, but it certainly shows that age always gives way to determination, passion, and hard work. And despite what age you're at, technology is something you can embrace and something that's going to make things better for you. Now check out John's podcast and writing works uh, via the link in our show notes. Uh, please subscribe to our podcast and all the usual podcast channels. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and enjoyed the show, please rate and review. Also visit our website, amdocs.com forward slash the great indoors, where we have all our back episodes and a cornucopia of other assets associated with the podcast. And until then, I'm Matt Roberts for Amdocs in Toronto. Have a great day wherever you are.